Welcome. Hi, I'm Mickey, and this is Wikipedia, where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners, and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness, and well-being. And I'm delighted that you're here. Hey everyone, it's Mickey here. You're listening to Wikipedia, and this week on the podcast, I speak to Canadian explorer, expedition leader, ultra marathoner, and creator of Impossible to Possible, Ray Zahab. So Ray shares his story on how he found his way to the pursuit of the impossible after feeling unfulfilled and unsatisfied with the direction of his life as a younger adult, you know, close to 30. And this has led to the exploration of extreme environments and extreme undertakings as a test of his personal and physical limits. We discuss all of this in addition to Impossible to Possible, a charity set up to provide kids the opportunity to experience the outdoors. And most recently, Ray's latest challenge with cancer and how he has navigated the diagnosis and his recovery. Ray is just the best human and you're really going to enjoy this conversation. So for those of you who do not know Ray, he has been recognised as one of Canada's top explorers. He has done solo expeditions across the Arctic, Baffin Island, Trans, Namibia, Sahara Desert, and he trains and strives to have extraordinary experiences in the world. So he's the author of Running For My Life, a story of his metamorphosis from a pack-a-day smoker to an endurance athlete. And he is the founder of Impossible to Possible and sits on the board of directors of the Ryan Wells Foundation and 1X1 Foundation. As I said, Ray is awesome and we I've popped links in the podcast notes to his Instagram account, to Impossible to Possible, so you can find out more information about that, and also his amazing website, which carries a lot of the blogs and a lot of his stories in and around his expeditions, and that is Ray Zahab, R-A-Y-Z-A-H-A-B.com. So, before we crack on into the conversation, I would just like to remind you that the best way to support the podcast is to hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast listening platform. That increases the visibility of the podcast out there in amongst the literally thousands of other podcasts. So more people get the opportunity to learn from guests such as Ray and all of their knowledge and experience. All right, team, please enjoy the conversation I have with Ray Zahab. Ray, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me uh, this morning, your evening. Um, I'm super keen to chat to you about, obviously, your background and your sort of personal interest in outdoors, but also how you've created this professional endeavor, Impossible to Possible, your coffee company, your health journey, all the things, basically, Ray. Um, Can we kick off? Because I'm always really interested to understand more how someone ends up in the position you're in you know from a personal sort of growing up perspective so what was your family life like like were you like keen outdoorsy younger in your younger years well so I grew up my brother and I we grew up uh with our parents on in the country and we grew up on a small sort of farm we had horses and uh it was mainly horses but we had horses we had cattle all around us cattle farms all around us we had you know, vegetable gardens, and we had all kinds of animals. I mean, you know, rabbits, we had dogs, everything. And so basically, I mean, we grew up living sort of an outdoor lifestyle, but I wouldn't say it was, it was by, is it was by necessity. That's not even the right words. It just, it was just the life that we lived. We lived in a small town in the country on a farm. And so everything you did, you just kind of like, you had to make it. You had to make entertain yourself in the summers and stuff, right? Like it was the seventies. Yeah, no, <laughs> I get like, it. I'm yeah, not yeah. That young, right? So it was the nineteen seventies. 
So, I mean, you know, it was a different time. Yeah. So you didn't have your iPhone to scroll through or, you know, text someone to meet up or jump on the internet and send someone an email. Your mom had to like basically call and hopefully catch the neighbors, which are like several kilometers away that, you know, you might catch their kids and be able to make a play date happen. I mean, it's just, you know, but whatever. We had a great childhood, you know, I, I think it was truly for me, um, pivotal was probably, you know, I've told this story so many times, but every time I, I, I tell someone this story, I think about this aspect that for each and every one of us, challenges in life are very relative. And when we're experiencing difficult things in our lives, sometimes we don't realize it until there's a change. Like, for example, I used to smoke a pack a day and then I just thought it was normal to go upstairs and it to be a struggle going upstairs. And then, you know, in 2000, when I changed my life and I over the course of the next few years got into mountain bike racing, adventure racing, and then eventually ultra marathons, I could bound upstairs and I was like, oh, right. This used to be a struggle, right? Yeah. But it becomes a relative thing. So I would say that approaching the millennium in the late 90s, I was heading towards 30 years of age. I was very unhappy. I was, I was happy. It was the life of the party on the outside. But inside, I just was this person who I didn't realize at the time. Now I know that I was unhappy, unfulfilled, no direction in life, wasn't really doing too much with my life. I mean, I, you know, I was doing, I was dabbling here and there, but I wasn't truly passionate about anything. And I guess, I don't know why that was so important to me at the time, but it was that I just wanted to be, you know, truly happy, not fake happy, but really happy. And so I have a brother who's an amazing athlete and um, one of the leading strength coaches in the world. And he, um, and his wife, who's also a strength coach, but he wasn't married at the time, but he at the time was doing Ironman triathlons and mountain biking and climbing. And I saw in this person, a true inspiration. And I thought, wow, he's so confident and stoked and everything else with the things that he does. Maybe if I did some of the things that he does, my life would be different. And that would lead me down a path of a completely sort of different discovery. And you know, I would end up becoming a passionate climber, quitting smoking, um, getting into mountain biking, racing mountain bikes at an elite level, and then eventually discover running. And, you know, that just took things to a whole new level. And I was competing in ultra marathons all over the world and so on and so forth, which I'm sure you'll ask me about after. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. So, Ray, I mean, this, well, we're talking, what, almost 25 years ago now, not like, not quite, but... Can yeah. you remember? Yeah, yeah, it's a long time ago. It is, and and it's like that that type of change that you took. Well, it's, I mean, it sounds so dramatic, but I like. How long did it take? And can you even remember sort of some of the initial how it felt like as you were, I guess, transforming that? Well, I mean, what did it feel like? I, you know, at the time, like the talk of transformation, the talk of the you know this kind of stuff wasn't really popular. Right. It wasn't like a normal thing. Like we all talk about it now. There's a million social media posts about it and there is a social media. So you're connecting with other people that maybe might think the same way or, you know, so you don't really, it, it was just a different time and a different thought process. So at the time when I was making these decisions to shift my life, it wasn't about becoming an outdoors person or an explorer or whatever. It was about, learning things about myself and about um, just becoming someone who was happier and more fulfilled in their life. And I would, because of my brother, my brother and I have these, you know, with these, with these big engines for endurance. And I saw him doing amazing things in endurance sports. And then all of a sudden I was like, Oh, wait a sec, you know, two years into after quitting a pack a day smoking habit, I have smoked a pack a day for years and years and years. And just a few years after that, I'm racing mountain bikes like all over the world, right? So, uh, and then, then ultra running all over the world. So, and winning ultra marathons, by the way. So it was, it was just, I discovered that I had this other part of me that I'd never known my entire life. And I was being reintroduced to someone. So the, the emotion that I remember the most is probably that one of, um, it was probably the one most about, um, like sense of discovery and sense of being introduced to someone who, you know, 
I've known my entire life, but maybe I didn't know. And that's me. Yeah. So I think that that was the most compelling thing that I remember from that time. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And you know, Ray, people and I talk about this all the time is that, you know, when you want to change behavior, you almost have to change your identity. You know, you have to start thinking about yourself as being someone different in order to then identify with the thoughts and behaviors that go along with those experiences to sort of help make sort of big yeah, change. I, I think that that's a very interesting point. And I think that the other part of it for me was that I remembered very distinctly having to work at being happy because I was not a glass half full kind of person. Like I am now glass half. I'm, I just can't help but be optimistic. I try to, you know, some things I'm like, okay, there's no optimism, but maybe, maybe, maybe there's like, you know, a little light at the end of the tunnel. So in the old days, pre 30, I would see everything with, you know, a glint of gray, right. And everything was like, well, you know what, instead of waking up and saying, you know, now I look outside and I'm like, oh, wow, it's it's sunny, but there's some clouds out. So maybe I don't have to, you know, put on SPF today or whatever, right? Like looking at, in the old days, they'd be like, oh, great. It's probably going to rain. There's a few clouds out there, right? So it's a subtle difference in attitude. And so I would work at being happy. And I tell people this all the time. I say, listen, happiness is not just something that all of a sudden happens instantly. I suppose it can for some people in certain circumstances, like winning a lottery or something. But for the most part, you got to work at being happy in your life. It's It takes more effort to be positive than it does to be negative. Negativity is like a warm sleeping bag. It's very easy to fall into and slip into. And it's very easy to for those negative emotions to um, recreate themselves and become bigger and bigger and bigger. Whereas positive, it takes more at work. But the you know, the end result is much more rewarding, you know? Ray, can you remember, like, people you were, so, so, I guess, that you were friends with at that time? Like, I find this also curious. So obviously, you've got that strong family connection with your brother and his now wife that who were very into the outdoors. But often we gravitate towards people who think and feel the same way. Like, did you have to give up friendships as you sort of changed your the way you did things? Or? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I don't know if I actually gave up the friendships or if that just the dynamic of life takes over and you're doing different things and you're just sort of losing touch. But I have friends from those days still. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. and some of them have gone through life transformations and some haven't, you know? So yeah. it's yeah. all, you know? Yeah. It all depends on the person. Yeah, no, totally. Um, Is that how you met your wife, Kathy, through doing ultra, ultra marathons? Yeah, yeah exactly. It's, so I was working at a... um by this point, so I, I changed my life and then I, you know, what am I going to do for a living? I love doing these things. And I was like, well, you know what? I, I'm fascinated by the work that my brother and sister-in-law were doing in functional aspect of fitness, core strength before it was cool. And talking and working, they were working with elite athletes, Olympic athletes. They were working with hockey players and all these people. And they were working with people that were injured and had very little chance of getting back to doing the things they love. But then they started working with my brother and sister-in-law, Sarah, and were able to return full and some even better than they were. And I thought, wow, what a cool gig. So then I started doing this. I learned from them, but I also took courses and, you know, became a trainer at that time. And so that also changed who I was and facilitated the life that I was living, going around the world, doing these races at the time. And that sort of thing. I wasn't at that point a professional explorer, you know, as I am now, but that's what I was doing then, right? Before I ran across the Sahara Desert. But I may have segued off of your question. I can't remember what your no, original no, question was. I, you know, I wondered if that's how you met Kathy, actually. And so at the time, I was, and was thank you. At the time, I was a functional strength coach and I was working out of a buddy of mine who's a really well-known chiropractor and active release technique provider. And I was working in an adjacent office with clients of his that were, they had gone for treatment and in his clinic with the therapists. And then I would work with them to create a functional strength program. And Kathy happened to be one of those people. Oh, nice. So, oh, yeah. and, and was that, and with regards to your, because the other thing about Ray, about what you've done is that you haven't just sort of um, transformed from some sort of couch potato to someone who just runs marathons. Like you just sort of went, was it sort of head first into like the ultra sort of world? Like, well, I was doing, so I went from, it was a mishmash in the beginning. I was ice climbing a lot with my brother. That was something we were passionate about in the winters. That would, we would, is what we would do. Cause we live in a true four seasons climate here, right? Like it's full on winter. And then, um, 
in the summers I'd be mountain bike racing and I got into adventure racing and, um, really enjoyed that. Love that multi-sport aspect of it. And then I started racing mountain bikes, 24 hour solos. And then I can't remember how exactly it happened, but I, I picked up a magazine with an article in it and there was an article about ultra marathons. And specifically the article was about a race in the Yukon every winter, the Yukon Arctic ultra. And I was just captivated by this story of people running these extreme distances in one shot in such extreme environments. And I thought, wow, that looks really cool. And the type of ultra marathon that I was attracted to were the kind that involved adversity, like cold or extreme heat or navigation or having to wear a pack or stage races or whatever. And I think that comes from the adventure racing background, to be honest with you, is why I was attracted to those type of races. But at any rate, long story short, I read this article and was so mystified by how these people could commit to doing something in the extreme cold like that. And it's so difficult. And I thought, geez, I'm going to try and do that. I'd never ran a foot race before, but I thought, what the hell? I mean, in good, I'm in great shape. I'll give it a try. And I sort of, I spent a few months learning running techniques and, you know, how to prepare for the race. And I entered it and won it. And I thought maybe I should do this with the rest of my life. And so I bumped around trying to learn the aspects of that race that were so overwhelmingly, so overwhelmingly, uh, uh, uh epiphany making in my life. So when I was in that Yukon race, you know, I almost dropped out halfway through, but something compelled me to keep moving forward. And through like getting into this absolute focus of wanting to so desperately go as far as I could down this trail that I was on, pain started to dissipate from my body. And I started to do things physically. Like I started out and it sucked. And then by the end of the race, I actually felt good. And I'm like, okay, that makes absolutely no sense because I've gone for a hundred miles. Right. And what is it that, what is those mechanisms that makes us in each and every one of us have the capacity to exceed mental, physical, and emotional limits that we think we have. What is it that, that, that makes us do that? And so the only way I could figure out that I would ever learn the answer to that was by doing more ultra marathons. And so I went around the world doing these races and yeah, um, yeah it was pretty crazy. You know, have you been to New Zealand, Ray? No, I'd love to go to New Zealand. I'd love to do that trail, the North to South. I have a lot of friends from New Zealand. There's, uh, uh, you know, Ian Adamson. I knew him. He was raced in the Eco Challenge many times. I know Ian. And I know, I've, I, actually, the guy that does all of our finance stuff in Capaguana is from New Zealand. And so, ah. I'm fascinated with the architecture in New Zealand. <laughs> We're always <laughs> looking at stuff there. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, no, because, uh, well, New Zealand's waiting for you, Ray, because we've just got an entire playground. And you're right, the whole um, Te Araha Trail that goes north to south would be amazing oh yeah um, there's i see videos of it all the time it looks incredible i'd love to do it with my daughters and my wife it'd be amazing yeah absolutely um so ray how so at what point in your journey i suppose did this become a career for you like i like that seems like so yeah how did that and and sort of happen so i'm racing in these ultra marathons 2004 2005 2006 and i met a couple of guys in racing and we came up with this crazy idea to run across the entire Sahara desert. And we, you know, so the, one of the guys on the team had done some work in television. He was like, Hey, I think I know a guy I can mention this project to." And so he mentioned it to the guy and the guy's like, Hey, you know what? I think I know some people I can mention this project. And one thing leads to another. And all of a sudden Matt Damon is producing a documentary out of us running across, you know, 7,500 kilometers across the Sahara. We have an Academy award winning director. I mean, it was crazy. And so that sort of started it. And it wasn't because necessarily the film, but it was this notion when we stood on the West Coast of Africa, I thought, there's no way I'm going to make it. Like, there's just no way that I can make it. But as I had in other ultra marathons, it was just on a grander scale. And although we ran for 111 days without taking a day off, on an average of 70 kilometers a day across the desert, six countries, et cetera, we made it to the end, all of us together. And in completing that run, I again was fascinated by the cultures I was coming into contact with, the people whose life stories I was learning about because I was on an adventure. We were learning about economics, agriculture, you know, biodiversity, everything, because of this huge adventure. And I thought, geez, for starters, I love the fact that I didn't know the outcome before it started. 
I love the fact that it was incredibly challenging, incredibly difficult, and I wasn't sure if I could get it done. I love the fact that it was point to point. I love the fact that I was so compelled to want to learn about everything that was around me. So simultaneous to me deciding, you know what, I'm doing this for the rest of my life and I'm going to do expeditions. Um, I also had this idea that my wife and I and a buddy of mine, Bob Cox, would come up with together. And that was to create a foundation called Impossible to Possible, where we would take kids on mini versions of sort of my expeditions and use them as learning opportunities for kids like kids 16 to 21 go on these expeditions it's totally free of charge we don't get paid we're all volunteers and then we create learning materials from the expeditions that they're on and they communicate their expeditions to classrooms and so you know what i'm saying so at the same time i'm like okay i'm going to do expeditions professionally and also i'm going to do this foundation at the same time and i'll use the sponsorship from my expeditions and whatever uh, and awareness building and everything else to fund this other thing that I love so much, you know? And that's sort of how it started. Yeah, that's so amazing, particularly because, so what type of kids would come on a, a, what is this whole, so what is the ethos behind impossible to possible? Like what kind of kids do you attract or you want to attract? And- well, we, we don't, we don't, you know what? There are no parameters in our organization. They, there is a, I'm not on the selection committee, but when they select the youth that get to go, we, we take everybody if we had the money, but I mean, you know, it's expensive. Um, so criteria for every expedition is different depending on the parameters of the youth expedition, the subject matter that we're teaching, et cetera. So mostly what happens is there are essay questions that are initiated and students first have to you know, after a social media post, hey, we're going to be launching this expedition. You email us to get the application. The kids have to work for it, right? Yeah. And then they go through the criteria. And the selection committee is our executive director with uh, former youth ambassador alumni that helped to pick the kids. And that's how they get selected, you know? And yeah, we get lots of applicants, but we can only take four or five kids at a time. 16 to 21 years of age. They come from everywhere. There is no demographic trend if you will i mean i would say yeah i mean that's just you know i would say it's 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 right across the spectrum kids from everywhere from all economic backgrounds religious backgrounds sex everything yeah amazing and i imagine ray that these kids that come on would have a similar experience potentially to how you were describing your own sort of journey in this space you know, you're, you know, when you were 30 and then you embarked on the sort of outdoorsy and the, the changes and stuff that you experienced. Oh yeah. I some kids some of these kids. Oh, yeah, yeah, some yeah, do, yeah. Some do for sure. Yeah. And others are already like absolute go-getters. Right. So it all depends on the kid, you know, it's yeah, what, yeah, it's what, yeah. but there is no correct outcome. It's whatever they take from it. That is the critical thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's, for sure. It's what they get out of it. That's yeah. important. Yeah. So the Sahara Desert, obviously, that's like one extreme environment, but you're like all extremes. Yeah. Typically, my expeditions are deserts in the middle of summer and Arctic expeditions in the middle of winter. Desert expeditions I do with some support because I like to hustle. I just can't be bothered trying to drag 4,000 pounds of water. So I have resupplies every 20 to 30 kilometers, but I'm navigating cross country. We're super remote areas. And I've crossed most of the large deserts on the planet, with the exception of the Simpson Desert in Australia. I've crossed most of the larger deserts and um, all of them or most of them in the middle of summer, averaging about 60 to 80 kilometers per day across country. Arctic expeditions I typically do in the middle of winter when it's minus 50, minus 60, and I'm completely unsupported. So I drag all my supplies with me. Yeah. So, Ray, were you in Death Valley on like the hottest recorded day in history i was i was attempting a north to south in july Mm. 21 Mm. i was attempting to go north south of a route i'd already previously established in august of 2011 and i was going with the same guy that i did the 2011 my buddy will and i and we were like you know what let's retrace our route see if we can clean up the navigation it's 250k it's not too too far let's just see what we can do well 24 hours into it and we're looking at each other saying I don't know what's going on here because we're disconnected from the news and everything. I don't know what's going on here, but this heat is not survivable. Like it just, something is crazy. Is it just us or is it the heat? Well, it turned out to be the hottest. We're in the middle of Death Valley in the hottest recorded temperatures ever. It was 100 and 
34 Fahrenheit at Furnace Creek, but where we were, we had very accurate weather devices. We were measuring 137, which is like 58 oh, Celsius or something crazy. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, it was like yeah, not survival. So, so we had to stop. <laughs> oh, mate. So like, because it's, um, I can't even comprehend how hot that would be. So I was in the UK last year when it was the hottest day in recorded like, temperature, which, you know, is like 40 something degrees. And you could easily go inside on econ and be sweet. Um, but like, I, I, and I've never been particularly, I haven't really been in cold weather either because New Zealand's very sort of temperate. temperate yeah. Uh, temperate. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what is the difference between that? Like how much of an increase is that on top of what you would have expected? Well, so what I would have expected was around 120 Fahrenheit. So, uh, you know, what is that? 50? Um, yeah, yeah. and, uh, but it was, it was, there's a, there's a limit. That limit is around 125 I've found you know, in Fahrenheit. And it's funny, only when I talk about Death Valley, do I, I do the Fahrenheit thing, but it, it just makes sense to me in that location. Um, but beyond that, when you get above 125, it starts to get very difficult to survive because our resupplies were still, we, our water caches were 20 kilometers apart, 30 kilometers apart. So it was really difficult. We were drinking 10 liters every 20K. Jesus Christ. And, pro and processing it. And yeah, keep, yeah. keep in mind when I'm at home, I live in Chelsea, Quebec. Yeah. So with the humidity here, it can be 100% humidity in the Gatineau Hills where I live. And it can be 45 with the Humidex here in the summer. So it's very humid and hot. Yeah. And um, I can go 30K without drinking anything, right? But when you're in that climate, when you're in that environment and you're taxing your body so difficultly, you know, and I have a sauna in our backyard. I train for this stuff, but that was just not, the body was not cooling. It's like the wind was so hot, Mickey, that when the wind was blowing against my fingernails, they almost felt like they were on fire. Crazy. Yeah, it was crazy. Like, you know, when you reach into the oven and you grab a pizza out for the kids or something like that, like that feeling of the heat on the nail, like that's what it felt like. But outside, I mean, it was, yeah. it was like surreal. Yeah. See, the thing is, what which I think is amazing is that you're in this, such an extreme environment where everything is impacted, like cognitive function, and obviously is is part of that as well. And then you have to make this decision to, you know, go on or or not. Like, I wonder, you know, how. I wonder about the decision-making process. Actually, like how hard it was to say, "Nah, we're we're pulling this," and then later on. Do you, do you have any sort of regret or sort of like, oh, we could have gone on or was it like no, quite you a know clear? What? No, it's, I've become, I, and I, I, you know, it's funny you ask that. You're probably the only person that ever has asked me that. With age, I think, I don't know if it's an age thing, but I've come to realize, I've had to pull the plug on bigger expeditions. So I've done, what, 30 some odd expeditions and I've probably had to pull the plug three or four times. And I've learned that there's an innate decision making that i have and when i know i know when there's no regret it's not even it's like i know in the moment and i'm like my body knows to not forget the moment when i made yeah. the decision right because hindsight's 2020 and things always appear so much better when you're in air-conditioned truck after going maybe i could after getting picked up maybe i could have kept going no you couldn't have kept going you pulled the plug and the reason you pulled the plug is because it was not survivable so you know, I've never second guessed those decisions and I've never had regrets. Yeah, that's that's awesome. Actually, it's funny. Have you read Dave Goggins at all, Ray? No, I know him. Yeah, oh, we've oh. met and stuff in, in the in years past and we have mutual friends from years ago. Okay, so because there's this one part in his book when he's talking about how he's, uh, uh, like he signs up for a 100-mile race on a Saturday and he signs up for that race on the Tuesday just beforehand. And on the Saturdays, he's doing this 100-mile track race. He's thinking, it's so easy to make the decision to do this thing when I'm in my aircon office on a Tuesday afternoon and I'm sitting at my seat at my computer going, yeah, I could do a 100-mile. And then, of course, four days later and he's doing it and he's like, what on earth was I thinking? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, with on oh, no training. But that, that what you said about that, um, uh, about how you could be thinking about it but not, um, just reminded me of that. Um, Ray, how do you train for such an event? Like, I'm an endurance runner and I do ultras as well. Um, and I, you know, and, and the type of training that is involved is probably, you know, one fifth, well, not even like one tenth of the kind of thing that you'd need to think about. So, how do you train for, let's say, um, 
your most recent event? Like, well, what- you know what? It's it's Mickey. It's it's all relative, right? You know, when mm. I first started, when I finished running across the Sahara, somebody asked me that I knew in my community. They said, "So, dude, what what was the sense of accomplishment like? Like when you reached the Red Sea and you thought about seven thousand five hundred k that you ran?" And I said, "You know what? The first run I remembered, even though I was in amazing shape from racing mountain bikes." I went with a buddy of mine for a run. It was seven kilometers from where we, we used to have an apartment over there. And it, just running from this little apartment that was a renovated sandwich shop. It's a crazy story. But I, it was seven kilometer loop to get back to that little renovated sandwich shop, which was our apartment at the time. And I remember the first time I did that with my buddy without having to take a walk break or a stretch break because something was tight. And I thought, wow, I ran from like I closed my door and then when I opened my door I ran that whole 7 kilometers that was exactly how 7500 felt so it was the exact equal sense of accomplishment because it's relative so my training and for what I prepare for I've learned that elements for training for a marathon or an ultra marathon all apply but what the biggest thing is is being very specific to the environment that I'm going into and training my body to process food and hydration under tremendous stress, whether it's cold or hot. So this may surprise you, and it surprises a lot of people, but I'll use our hot sauna to yeah. train for extreme cold. Because what I'm trying to do is get my body to process calories in a stressful situation. And stress is stress. And the mechanics yeah. of stress at the end of the day are very similar, whether it's work stress, relationship stress, family stress, money stress, exercise stress. The chemical reactions that have uh, has on our body are in some ways similar, right? It's detrimental in some ways. So what I do is I train to best prepare for those stressful situations that will occur on expeditions. My training typically takes one year for one expedition. And based on the terrain that I'll be in, whether I'm pulling a sled in the Arctic or running through rocky desert, I prepare for that terrain elevation gained, et cetera. But I don't do a ton of speed work. It's all like fartlek training and that sort of thing on trails. And I train based on elevation gained a lot is a big primary thing for me, you know? Yeah, 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 totally. So uh, do you have a coach, Ray, or do you coach yourself? No, I coach myself right now. I have had coaches in the past ones and I was coaching. I, I moved out from, um, I moved away from the functional strength stuff, although I still dabble with it. Um, and then started, co- I had a coaching business where I was coaching running clients for several years. And then um, after I created Impossible to Possible and realized in those first few years, it was going to take a lot more of my time, volunteer time, I was going to have to find a different avenue for earning an income that coaching 50 clients a month was just not feasible, right? So then I started speaking to companies. And so that's what I do. And so I fly around the world and I speak to companies about the expeditions that I do. And that's how I earn an income, among other things, with the coffee company and guiding and all those other things. It all adds up. So I make enough to take care of my family and keep on trucking. But with the coaching, um, I learned a lot in that process. I learned from others and would apply that to my own stuff. But I, you know, I was coached by Lisa Smith at one point and some other great people over the years. Yeah, cool. Are you good at, I mean, okay, look, you're obviously experienced and um, and you know when you might be overreaching or overtraining or, or something like that, but are you are you good at listening, you must be good at listening to your signals as well as to, you know, you might have something planned on paper, but then uh, halfway through the week, you're actually feeling more tired than you think you are. Or well, I imagine that you're quite good at that. Yeah. So I, right now I have probably five or six people that I coach just for fun because I enjoy the process of coaching people and I volunteer my time and I help them out and I get them ready. And I've got, you know, a couple of runners that are really, really competitive, like on the world scene competitive. And what I've tried to teach them to do is leave their devices at home and learn about their bodies and, you know, taking a holistic approach, you know, example, nose breathing, right? Like it's a new thing now. It's a big thing now. Lisa Smith taught me about nose breathing in 2004. 2004, way before it was popular, but she knew about it, right? And so these little elements of understanding and listening to your body are critically important. Last year, 
Um, and for two years, I started feeling really tired during my training. And I'm like, something's not right. Something's not right. But I, I was not listening to my body. I was ignoring my body until I got to a point last summer when I was training for this west to east crossing at the widest point of Death Valley that I had planned to do. I um, couldn't. I would do a long run one day, and I would have to rest the next day. And some, my wife was like, "Okay, you got to go to the doctor, right?" And so off I went, and I got my blood work done, and it showed that I was anemic. But it was not my gut feeling. My gut feeling was like, "Okay, I'm totally anemic. I don't have enough red blood cells." I can't get oxygen. I'm foggy headed all the time. Like I, I need to nap three or four times a day. It's not, this is not me. Now, of course she compelled me to go, but I don't think I would have been so intuitive. You know, had, had I not spent my life in this as an explorer, being intuitive and training with intuition, knowing when to push, knowing when to let off. I don't think I would have had these other signals. And lo and behold, as you know, because we've communicated on social media, I had blood cancer and I didn't even know it, right? And then I started chemotherapy and all that. And even through the chemo, I learned moderation. I learned things about how to train, how to eat even different. I've been eating super clean for years. Well, I learned even more about nutrition through this process. So with it both being a total bummer, it also was an amazing opportunity to learn more about myself and physiology and nutrition and everything else. So now I got shit super dialed and I'm training for what's next after finishing my chemo. So I'm even more into, I can tell you when I'm running and I use my Apple watch, uh, I got an Apple watch ultra and I use it to track. I, I track different things that people don't normally track. So I do track my sleep. I track my caloric output daily because I know when I deviate, when my body's burning more calories or under burning just in regular life. Like it's those things, right? And, but, but, you know, obviously I have the heart rate monitor on and all that, but I can be running with you and say I'm at 121, not 122. I'm at 121 beats per minute and I'm exactly right every single time because I'm so in tune with my body, right? Yeah. Well, that's crazy. I've got to say, Ray, um, your optimistic outlook certainly came through when you were talking about um, the leukemia sort of experience. Oh, lymphoma. Lymphoma. Yeah. I'm sorry. No, lymphoma. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Um, and so prognosis then, so oh, it's really, like, done. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, prognosis is great. I mean, it's not curable. Nothing, you know, these things, these types of things are not curable. It's going to come back, but Hey, if I get two or five really good, two to five really good solid years where I'm like, I was two years ago. And then I have to go through the chemo thing again. What the hell? It's worth it. <laughs> and maybe they'll have a cure, you know? Yeah. 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 No, I bloody love that. That's what else can you do, right? Yeah, like, exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. What I would say, though, is interesting that you that like your mental toughness, and I and I'm I'm interested to know whether you have any particular strategies that you use to help sort of overcome seemingly insurmountable sort of challenges. I mean, that's basically your life. Uh, that that can work against you in exactly what you just described, that you you had these signals, yet you sort of continued to ignore them because you're so mentally tough. And I find some people do have that with their, you know, they might be under particularly stressful situations but not be able to read it properly because they're just so used to having to be tough. I don't know. Yeah, it's a good point. I, You know, I think for me, you know, this biggest strategy, the strategy that I've employed the most, I learned this years ago. I was taking a, um, I was, I was training at a play, a facility that trained cyclists when I was racing mountain bikes and the university of Ottawa was doing a, uh, the, the PhD psychology students were doing a study on resonance and, you know, projection and projecting yourself like athletes, projecting the outcome they want to have and, and doing all this visualization stuff and everything. I was like, eh, I'm not doing that. And then, but the students were like, hey, it's 500 bucks. I need, I'm so desperate for money. I was like, yeah, what the hell? I'll give them a try. And I started doing, you know, it was a psychologist that I, you know, immediately connected with. And this person was like, fantastic, right? And um, she taught me, uh, these, these strategies for dealing with stress and coping with stress when you're preparing for an event and focusing on, on, on that finish line before it even happens. Right. And running yourself through, you know, cause it was a mountain biking. So I would visualize, I would walk a course the night before, and then I would visualize the entire thing before going to sleep. And then the next day I would ride that mountain bike race. And it's like, I wasn't even there. It's like my head was somewhere else, but it was just happening. 
And then this, this, this over the years, and I'm getting to my point over the years, this skill became so refined that I, I almost have two versions of myself. There's expedition Ray and there's at home Ray and expedition Ray is when I go on expedition, the hardest part for me is being away from my family for a month or two months or whatever it is. So I am separated. I don't know how to describe this any other way. It's going to sound crazy, but I'm separated from what it is that I'm doing at the time. I'm there and I'm lucid and I'm in the environment. I'm in the Arctic and I'm hiking my way across the Arctic, whatever. But then when I get home, I slip back into this non-visualizing, non-participant you know, mode, and it feels like I've only been gone three days. So there's no, there's none of this. Oh, I'm so bummed. You know, the, the, you know, when people get like a, a depression after they've traveled somewhere for a really long time, I don't get that. I'm just like so stoked to be home. It's not even funny. But you know what I'm saying? Like I, 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 it's been packaged, it's put away, and it's done. And that whole time frame could be a month and a half. It feels compressed. It feels like, like it feels like what a week now feels like. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, amazing. That's yeah, no, my strategy. That's my coping strategy. That's yeah. the biggest thing I've got going for me. Yeah, that. no, that's awesome. So does that does that mean then when you're out in that environment that um, uh, home ray or your sort of home life, like you're able to um, that disconnect happens there as well. So you're not thinking about yourself as Ray the dad, Ray the husband. No, no, I'm thinking about all Ray that and, stuff. Oh, everything is like everything. Oh, okay. Still, so everything is like yes. everything is like status quo. Just the only difference yeah, yeah. is it's like I'm not emotionally connected to what it is that I'm doing. That time frame, yeah. time, yeah, 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 is changed. Time as as I internalize it changes, and one day in the okay. expedition it slips into the next, and it slips into the next, and eventually I get there. And then I come home and I'm like, okay, leave it outside the door. And I'm like, hey, I'm home. And it only feels like I've been gone a week. It's weird, eh? Yeah, nice. Isn't crazy? Yeah, no, totally. You know what? Like, obviously, what I do is on a <laughs> far less scale to you, but I've, I was training for 100K at the start of this year. I broke my fibula, couldn't do it. Um, but what I recognized was as I was training for it, I had this shift in how I was thinking about it because I used to feel really apprehensive about my very long runs and the very long days that I would have out. And then I recognized that it was actually I was doing myself in because I was making it harder yeah. because I was, I was just, it was such a, um, it seemed like such a big uh, uh, undertaking. And once when I had realized that I started approaching these days, instead of being slightly nervous, I'm not sure what I would have been nervous about, but you just do. I started feeling like, no, this is, this is great. This is exciting. I'm able to be out here doing this and, and it's going to be done in like eight hours, you know, like it's actually not a long period of time. And so I need to really be out here and enjoy it and enjoy it for what it is because I'm the one that signed up for that race. So there was a reason why, and it was because I wanted to do it. Whereas I did want to be there, but everything in my being initially was like, well, this is a drag. I've got better things to do than spend eight hours on a Saturday running. But, no, that's super fascinating. Um, and I think that you are nailed it on the head there. And I think that, you know, my wife, Kathy, does these 200-mile races, and she's super busy with her job. She uh, works as um, an environmental advisor in impact uh, stuff and then as a gender uh, – and she works in gender as well and policy – and um, so she's super busy with two different hats and two different things. And she um, does these two mile races on four days a week of training because that's what she can afford to train. And but she's but like you said, she's excited about the distance, the prospect. I, oof, I watch her do these races. I mean, they're so hard, you know, but she loves them. And so she, you know, she loves the thrill of the unknown and the adventure that comes with it and all the rest of it. So I, I, I get what you're saying, you know, that aspect of it. And it's funny for me. Um, you know, people will say to me, oh, well, you know, you're doing a long run on the weekend, 50K, that's not, you know, or whatever it is, like 25 kilometers, that must be nothing for you. And I'm like, are you kidding me? 5K is hard. 5K right now, post-chemo, is very hard. So it's always relative on the day. And so you, you figure these things out. But you know what? As you say, you embrace it. And we do these things because we love to do these things, right? And at the end of the day, there's something about us that likes that aspect that makes it so hard. And maybe even more, if I'm being honest with myself, I love the aspect of being wasted at the end and being done. That feeling of yes. physical elation that you temporarily have after a race where you just feel amazing. And then you eat something really great because it's all about food for me. And then you go to sleep and you wake up the next day 
And it's like, when you wake up, you're like, oh yeah, I don't have to do anything. Like I just, I just totally did this huge thing. I don't have to do anything. <laughs> totally. I just like yeah, yeah. lay around all day if I want to. And it's no impact. I can do what I want. It's guilt-free. So you go through these transitions of physical erect, but elated. Then you're, you're you get the you know free license to eat whatever the hell you want. And then you go to sleep. You sleep amazingly or sort of amazingly. And then you wake up and it's guilt-free rest the whole next day. Like that whole bundle is amazing. No, I completely agree. It's really like you earn your right to be lazy. Yeah, exactly. you know? like I think that's, yeah. that's how I look at it as well. And there's a lot of backlash actually, not, not in your circles, but in, you know, as a nutritionist um, who sort of coaches on health and lifestyle and, and nutrition, like you shouldn't say things like you have to earn your calories or, or that kind of thing. But actually, like not that you have to, but it's so satisfying when you do well, anybody, it. You know? anybody, like anybody, it's so satisfying I mean, people, to be able to yeah, do that. Well, I mean, the people tell you, like, I mean, my, I've seen my wife consume, like, you know, a, a burrito that's the size of her arm after one of these races. <laughs> I mean, and I'm like, yeah, why not? I mean, you know, whatever. So, yeah, exactly. I, I, you know, I nutrition. It's a very touchy subject, and I mean, you know, you see, and it's gotten more and more touchy with all of the, you know, is are is someone vegan? Are they vegetarian? Are they keto? Are they this? Are they that? And what I have found for me. Um, and for my daughters who are competitive athletes and my wife, we try to eat a very much a whole food, healthy diet as much as we possibly can, mainly based on Mediterranean style of eating because that's my background. And um, I found the greatest performance gains from that. And I think that, you know, there are certain things that we can do uh, in, in our nutrition as we prepare and train to you know, alter and uh, we're feeling in certain days or certain ways or in our recovery, for example, there's things you can do. You can start taking out glutamine, for example. You can start increasing your, you know, making sure you're getting enough quality protein, whatever, to help with the recovery. And I think that that often gets overlooked. But my point is, is that after one of these things, um, it's not like it's a, it's a, we kid because we're saying, you know, it's a license to eat whatever the hell you want. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. at the same time, it kind of is because, you know, it's, good for your body to learn how to process those things on back end of something so difficult as well. And to be able to take an abundance of calories and use what you need after. Right. I know. I completely agree. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Now, Ray, can I actually get specific with you on your nutrition? If, if you're okay with that, because, um, people will, um, uh, would, would have been disappointed had I not gone down this road with you because I'm so fascinated by what, well, there's not a lot of science actually, obviously on the, uh, on the well, there's a bit on obviously um, uh, extreme environments and caloric requirements, which are in the several you know like nine thousand calories burnt a day type uh, um, realm. But what particularly? So one, I want to know how many calories do you target an hour, if that's how you think about it, when you're out there on your expedition. Two, where do those calories come from? And three. Uh, yeah, let's start okay, there, so, actually. so let's so, talk about expeditions and then let's go back to my yes. day-to-day and how I alter yeah, my diet for each expedition that I'm in. Love it. Okay, so there's two scenarios. Hot deserts, I'm eating what's available to me. So if I'm in Mongolia, I'm going to be very – I crossed the Mongolian desert, the Gobi Desert, 2,300 kilometers. I had available to me, if I remember correctly, we had a couple bags of rice. We had dried beans. We had – some things that were canned that so I adapted to that in my training. I knew what I was getting into when I'm on an Arctic expedition. I'm using 90% of my calories are fat because fat I'm carrying everything. I'm dragging it all. So I need to be super efficient, hyper efficient on what I'm dragging in my sled behind me. Well, nine calories per gram, I have less volume. I'm getting more. So I adapt my body to that sort of diet months before I go on one of these expeditions. Now, it'll surprise you that I am typically in a calorie deficit when I'm doing these expeditions, but I have trained my body in my day-to-day routine to glycogen spare, to um, be very efficient with the calories that I do take on board, and to process absolutely everything so that I can utilize and extract as much of the macro and micronutrients as I possibly can. When I'm, same with my hydration strategy, when I'm on an Arctic expedition, 
we'll be using tons of coconut oil. So I take ice cube trays and I melt coconut oil in and then I freeze it. And then I tr- when I travel up to the Arctic, it stays in cubes. And every meal that we have, we throw a cube in, which is like 300 calories of coconut oil into, we put one in our coffee. We put one in our soup. We put one in our, whatever we're eating, you know, so it's in everything. So your percentage of calories is completely jacked and you're getting all of that extra fat. Um, I use a lot of collagen, greens, formulas, et cetera, like that when I'm on these Arctic expeditions as well. High fat foods, anything that's super high fat will go with me typically. And then as far as drinking goes, it's cold. It's really cold. So over the course of weeks uh, or days and then weeks on an Arctic expedition, I'll adapt to a point where in the morning I have my coffee and then I may have a sip of water out of, you know, the water that we're melting. Then we fill our thermoses with hot water so that we have it with us. And then I don't drink all day for the entire distance. And then when we get in at night, we empty, empty those thermoses and that starts the, the, the melting process because it's really cold in the Arctic winter. So you got to have some, you know, you want to start the stove. You want to get things boiling with water instead of just ice and snow. And then I have my first meal, which is a soup that's a miso soup with collagen, coconut oil, coconut manna, um, crushed cashews, um, all sorts of things in there that make it healthy, vibrant, really good for the body as best we could possibly do out there. And at the same time, uh, you know, lots of sodium as well and hydrating. And then I go from there with the other foods. So that's kind of what it looks like. So, and, and a hot expedition would be similar, you know, but it's just the reverse foods. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, amazing. Like, have you seen those keto bricks, right? The keto bricks. What are those? Yeah, yeah, they're like these bricks. There are a thousand calories in a brick, which you would look at it and think, you know, like so, like very energy dense. But they're like, you know, pemmican. Which, yeah, I do. Oh, I've I, used I think pemmican. Yeah, 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 yeah. They're similar to that in terms of the caloric value and and where you get your calories from. But I think it's made from cacao and coconut, and so it's more of a sweet sort of texture. Oh, oh, you know what I'll do? I'll show you a link on it. Yeah, on send me a link. Send me a link because I, I, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm always fascinated by finding new stuff. My issue with some of the on-the-shelf keto foods that I see is there's a lot of dairy in them. And I'm allergic yes. to dairy, so I don't have any of that in my diet. Um, also, I don't like anything with sugar alcohols. I try to eat as many unrefined, unrefined and unprocessed foods as I possibly can. Um, yeah, yeah. Now, I'm more picky about that now post-chemo than I was before. I also, um, at home, my routine, if that interests you, is it's transitional. I periodize my nutrition like I periodize my training. So as I get into the summer months here, I'm preparing now to do a project this summer. I typically do uh, one shorter project and then one major project a year. The major project is like 20, 30, 40 days. And the shorter project could be, uh, you know, 250, 300 kilometers nonstop or maybe a two-day project, whatever. So they're usually at opposite ends they're polar opposites on the calendar, right? So one's in the middle of winter, one's in the middle of summer, middle of the winter being February here, January. It could be the Arctic in the winter. It could be in the desert in the Southern hemisphere, which is the middle of the summer, of course, right? So it just depends on where I am going. So I periodize my diet based on these two events that are happening in my life. As I roll into this, I'm training now and it's timed out right with my chemo ending that I can start to build my training and my strength training and everything else. I get up in the morning and I, the first thing I do is I have a glass of water with um, electrolytes in it, no sugar, just trace minerals, sodium, electrolytes to get my body going again. Um, and then I have my coffee and in my coffee, I'll typically put a teaspoon of coconut oil and I mix that up and that's all I have in my coffee. Then I run fasted or I strength train fasted at that point. Then I follow that up now, and this has changed recently, but what I'll do, and I'm not vegan, obviously, but uh, or, or vegetarian, but what I'll do is I use a really high-quality sprouted vegan protein because I like the ingredients. They're very simple. It's non-dairy. It works really well for me. I put a scoop of that in a shake maker and then a little handful of parsley, a scoop of L-glutamine, a scoop of amino acids, and then I'll add to that um, juice that I've made with a masticating juicer and I'll do uh, parsley, ju- parsley, romaine, ginger, carrots, blah, 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 all green stuff. And it sounds like a lot of work, but it's really not. It doesn't take long because it's like all happening at one time. 
And then I put yeah, that yeah. in there and then I zip it up and then I drink that. And then, you know, from that point forward in the day, I'm doing whole foods. Yeah. Oh, delicious. And your, um, do you going into an expedition, do you purposefully gain weight that you know you're going to lose? Do you lose a lot of weight? Like, what does that look like for you? In, in Super great question. I used to do that. I used to do that. When I went to the self pole, I was super heavy before I went, I gained like 20 pounds and lost it all. And then I guess I was doing a project. I'd met an Italian friend, Stefano Gregoretti and I, who ran across, we ran across the Nemed Desert together, almost 2000K, the Patagonian Desert, 1000K, uh, Kamchatka, multiple Arctic expeditions. We've done a ton of stuff together over the years. And when we started doing projects together, we said there's got to be a better way because it's not healthy for us to be packing all this weight on. This doesn't make sense. If our bodies are functioning, functioning optimally, we should be able to train to process the food we're eating at home and mimic the expedition. You know, we don't we don't train at home and and, and become you know untrained and then say okay I'll get I'll get fitter on the expedition. Maybe I even used to think that in the old days. So I'm like, why would I do that nutritionally? So I changed my 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 mindset on probably around 2015, and I started being really fit going into my expeditions. And now, instead of losing 30 pounds, I just lose three pounds or whatever, right? Oh, I barely amazing. lose anything, right? And so I maintain myself. Yes. And I'm not a big guy to begin with. So I'm like normally about 150, 155 pounds. It's very difficult for me to pack on the weight, although chemo is good for that too. But it's very difficult to put on weight. And so, um, yeah, but I'm very good at retaining water. So I can retain a lot of water and that is a real benefit to me on expeditions because I rarely get dehydrated. It happens, but I rarely get dehydrated. Yeah. Do you take creatine? No. I used oh, to in early days when I was strength training, I used to, but I don't need it. I take L-glutamine. Supplement-wise, uh, for supplements, I use a greens formula typically. Now, keep in mind, I've had to stop all supplements, but I'm starting some again. But um, my main ones are... Um, yeah, greens formula, CoQ10, vitamin D, magnesium glyconate, glucosamine, MSM, of course, all that stuff. Um, a lot of collagen, um, a B complex, L-carnitine or acetyl-L-carnitine. I'll cycle through the two depending on what I'm doing. Occasionally HMB, but rare, more rare now. Uh, and some ginseng and a few things like that. That's about it, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's nice. I um, I would have imagined creatine could be helpful just from a water retention sort of perspective, brain perspective, but um, yeah, as a thing to think about. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, absolutely. That's great advice. Yeah, um, Ray, I find it fascinating that, but also completely unsurprising about your ability to regulate, for example, how much mass you're going to lose on that because you work hard at your efficiency in your normal diet, so you're training your body to utilize. Um, fat stores, but also fat stored on your, intra, your sort of in, intramuscular fat as well. So I imagine a lot of people, if they're gaining a lot of weight, they might not necessarily be training their body to um, glycogen uh, um, spare and, and that kind of thing. So that might well, place I think, them at more risk of yes, losing weight. So I think that the key with nutrition, and you're the doctor, so you know. But I, for me, I, I think the, 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 the key with nutrition is that not to look at nutrition from the perspective of calories in, calories out only, but instead yeah. looking at it from two perspectives. The old adage, you are what you eat. So if you eat yeah. garbage, you're going to be made out of garbage, right? So eat, eat quality whole foods. But also you're not eating to just give yourself calories. You're eating yourself to yeah. manipulate your endocrine system. And the yeah. things that you do and the times that you eat and how you eat, it doesn't have to be complex, but if you listen to your body and you learn from your body, things like intermittent fasting or, um, you know, that are very easy to do. I mean, listen, there's a lot of people out there, I'm sure they've experienced this, where they're rushed in the morning and they're getting out the door with the kids. They grab their coffee, they have their coffee. And then it's like two in the afternoon. They're like, I haven't eaten all day, but I just feel amazing. And then they eat something and then they crash immediately. Right? Well, there's something in there. There's something in there. Yeah, so, yeah, you yeah. know, if you now sit down, really look at it, maybe it doesn't mean you don't eat until two o'clock every day, but maybe there's a fasting period. And then you got to find out what you blunt that fasting period with 
so that you don't get that that um, sugar spike or insulin spike. And um, what is it in your life that you do or how can you eat to have that great performance all the time? You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. And, and feel yeah. that good all the time, right? Because I'll get you eat a bowl of cereal in the morning, you're going to feel like shit within two hours. And people wonder why they feel like shit, you know? No, I, yeah, I completely agree. And it is um, unfortunate because cereal is delicious. But it's amazing. to your point, Especially like, crunch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But no, you're, look, you're absolutely right. Hey, Ray, look, I really want to be respectful of your time. I do have just a couple more questions, yeah. and hopefully they're not going to take um, too much to answer. And you get asked this all the time, but um, do you have like a number one top? Um, place that you've been, expedition you've been on, um, well, person you do it with, like my favorite, your experience. Yeah, my favorite place on the earth is probably Baffin Island in the Canadian Arctic. I've crossed it 11 times. Uh, I now take clients there because it's just out of all of the expeditions, 20,000 kilometers that I spent on my feet all over the world, it's got to be the most beautiful place on the planet. It's spectacular. So oh, Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. How long do your expeditions last when you take clients with you? When I take clients, it's usually eight to 10 days door to door and they're small expeditions. So we don't take more like the group I take to Baffin Island, for example, seven people. That's it. We have a huge guide to it's two, two people for every guide. Um, and then I'm guiding this year as well in the Atacama Desert in November. Um, and I think we're taking 10 people. Oh, amazing. And um have you seen, I mean, you've been to so many places and to so many places several times. Have you seen a real change in the environment since you've gone, like, Ray, over the years, you know, like? Oh, absolutely. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah and absolutely. It, it's not even a question. I mean, I, I've seen glaciers receding. I've seen glaciers disappear on in the, in the Arctic that I navigated towards, and they're gone now. They're just piles of rocks. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's crazy. I can't even imagine that. And even yeah. like you see it, but I mean, you know, you I might see it on TV or like yeah, yeah, no, my computer, sure. but I can't imagine sort of being in that. Yeah. Um, and twenty twenty and the pandemic hit. How was that for you? And given that you you know spend your livelihood, or obviously it's with your family and as well, but you know, like, did, was there a moment of oh my god, could this all be over? Uh, maybe. I don't recall that. I mean, I, you know, I had no income whatsoever because everything I do relies on moving about. So like no income was done. My wife was down to a minimal income with her consulting job, but it was also some of the best time we've ever had as a family because we were doing stuff together every day. We were out on the trails and we were doing stuff with the kids. And so, I mean, yeah, it was horrible, but at the same time, there's a lot of awesomeness about it at the same time. Yeah, I, yeah. I, you know, I don't want to sound like a, I don't know if that's the wrong thing to say, but I mean, there was, we did get a lot of good out of it, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I um, had similar experience and, and loads of people say the same thing, actually, in, in you know, completely different situations. Um, finally, of course, and I, I, I think I know the answer to this, but I'll just ask you anyway, like, has becoming a dad and like has that changed your perspective on what you do out there in the expeditions or is your ability to compartmentalize actually meant that you're still able to do and feel the same things as you go out there and not like has your risk has your sort of element for risk or your um risk taking changed at all no i mean listen the expeditions that i've done have always been risky choices i just mitigate the risk as better best i can with planning and everything else you got to remember it's the perspective of the people around you as well. You know, we started out talking, you were talking about friends and who my favorite, did I still have friends, you know, from that, the olden days, whatever, when I was unhealthy guy, previous life. And you do become a product of your surroundings, right? Like my kids think what I do is completely normal. It's a normal job. My wife is like, yeah, big deal. Like, I mean, I do these things, right? So it's normalized. So in that normalization, um, I'm used to doing these things and I try to plan and be as safe as I possibly can. Um, I will tell you this, I mean, being a dad is by far the greatest thing that, that I've done in my life. And, um, I've seen them now doing competing in their own sports. They both are biathletes. They're in Nordic skiing. They're in spring kayak. They're doing all their own things that we don't do. And I just love seeing them chart their own course and stuff. Right. So, you know, if someday I get to retire, I would just follow them around doing like, <laughs> I'll be their like, you know, manager. You know, <laughs> they'll be like, bloody hell, dad. Can you yeah, just? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, no, that's awesome, Ray. Ray, how can um, people find you on the internet? 
uh, and um, find out more about uh, Impossible to Possible, the expeditions that you run, and of course your own adventures. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, I mean, the same way that you and I connected through Instagram. I mean, everybody's on social media these days, so that's where I am on Instagram, just my name, Ray Zahab. I have a website, rayzahab.com, although it's updated less frequently because nobody seems to go to websites anymore. So, But, you know, my social media, that Instagram, there's a little link tree at the bottom that's got all the links. Yeah, no, that's amazing, Ray. Well, um, enjoy the rest of your evening and um, your cup of tea. And um, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It's great. Thanks, Becky. So such an amazing conversation. It was so great to be able to chat to Ray. I can't even remember how I found him. I think it might have been through Rich Roll, actually. Um, And then I just started following him and saw some of his most epic adventures and just his strength of character is so inspirational so definitely check out Ray on the socials and also his website. Alright team so we have a couple of days left to join up to Monday's Matter so if you've been thinking about doing something about your body composition but that's about as far as it's got it's no point waiting is there like you'll just be eight weeks down the track and nothing has changed so Get on, book your seat into Monday's Matter and we can get that ball rolling because we kick off as a group on Monday 29th of May. Until next week though, you can catch me over on Facebook at Mickey Willardin Nutrition, over on Instagram and Twitter at Mickey Willardin or head to my website mickeywillardin.com, that's where you'll find information to Monday's Matter and in addition to that you can check out blog posts, previous podcast episodes and of course book a consult with me all right team you have the best week see you later